This is a sermon from New City Presbyterian Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. To learn more about New City or to hear more sermons in this series, visit newcitycincy.org. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, kids, if you're heading to your New City Kids classes, you can head on out there in the back. Miss Jenny will direct you to where you are headed. I want to add my welcome to Ryan's from earlier. My name is Josh, one of the pastors here. Glad to be with you this morning. We've had a really busy weekend um, here at the church. We had our intro to New City class uh, this weekend. We had 19 folks in that class, which is a really great uh, time to be together in the morning. Um, a number of our folks were working hard. I don't know if you noticed outside, but a, a playscape has been, natural playscape has been constructed sort of next to the pavilion out there, which you, uh, grown-ups too, I suppose, but kids especially, if you want to try to make use of that after the service, there'll be some coffee out in the pavilion, and then you can head on over there and, and, uh, and play if you like. And then it's been a busy week as a whole. Um, I think as our elders are meeting tomorrow for our May meeting, we weren't quite expecting the number of announcements COVID-wise that happened this week. We had DeWine and then CDC and then DeWine again uh, later in the week. And so uh, we had thought, well, well, we have plenty of time to, to meet. And uh, so we just kept our, our Monday meeting. But there was a number of, of things that obviously came out this week. But all that to say, we are meeting tomorrow. And um, you can expect... Uh, communication from us about um, what our, our, our COVID policies, as they adapt going forward. We hopefully will have that information out to you early in the week, next week. So watch the normal communication signals uh, digitally and otherwise, uh, just so you know what's, um, uh, what's going on as we adapt, as the rest of the world adapts, or the rest of the state anyway, adapts to new situations on the ground for us. But I would love it if you would have your Bibles open to Acts chapter 17, if you uh, have your Bible with you this morning. Um, it's printed for you in your bulletin too. Uh, and if you're using one of the Bibles in the rows, I, I believe it's page 926. But the title of the message this morning is God for All Peoples. And we've been talking about the last couple of months now the boundary crossing nature of the gospel. Another way to think about this, or another way to say it, is we've been talking about the cultural flexibility of Christianity. And so the week after Easter, Erwin Ince got us started uh, on this series by looking at Acts chapter 6 and how a cultural conflict within the church was resolved. Then the next week, we went to Acts chapter 8 and looked at Philip's mission to Samaria and then to the Ethiopian eunuch, Acts 10. The following week, where Peter and Cornelius, that interaction, and then the launching of the gospel into the Gentile world. And Mike Prevatera had us look at Acts chapter 11, uh, the situation in Antioch where uh, the name Christian was first used as a descriptor, as a label, because all the old ways of describing people didn't fit this new group of Jesus followers. Typically, it was a language group or a geography that was used to name a group of people, but this group was so diverse of Jesus followers that they had to come up with a new term, a Christian, to describe them. And then Ryan, last week, had us looking at Acts chapter 15, the question there being, uh, how much do the Gentiles have to assimilate to being Jews in order to be Christians? And the answer from the council in Jerusalem in Acts 15 is not much, or only in so much as the foundations of Christianity exist within God's revelation to the people of Israel. So we're talking about the cultural flexibility of Christianity. And this is actually something I've been thinking about for a long, long time. I went to graduate school to study uh, comparative religion up at Miami University up the road there. And one of the things that my 
professors uh, at Miami uh, just sort of noted, they didn't have a lot of kind things to say about Christianity often, um, but one of the things they did sort of note that was unusual and they even would say admirable about Christianity is that Christianity is the only truly worldwide religion. I mean, consider, over 90% of Muslims live in a band or kind of a latitude or an area that stretches from you know, sort of around Southeast Asia to the Middle East to North Africa. 90% of Muslims in that same area. 95% of all Hindus live in India or in the immediately surrounded area. 88% of Buddhists live in East Asia. Now contrast that with Christianity. 25% of Christians live in Europe. 25% of professing Christians live in Central and South America. 22% live in Africa. In fact, the 20th century is sometimes called the, uh, the African moment for the church because uh, uh, Christian, uh, Christians, the percentage of Christians living in Africa went from about 1% in 1900 to over 20% by 2000, 22% now. And some are saying that Asia, this is the 21st century, is likely to be the Asian moment in Christian history, 15% growing fast in Asia, and then 12% of Christians live in North America. This has led scholars like Richard Bauckham to say, almost certainly Christianity exhibits more cultural diversity than any other religion, and that must say something about it. Almost certainly Christianity exhibits more cultural diversity than any other religion, and that must say something about it. Christianity is truly a worldwide religion. Well, what does that say about it? Laman Sana, who's from Gambia, African a scholar, professor at Yale Divinity School. I think he died just a few years ago. But he argues that not only is Christianity uh, the only worldwide religion, he also argues that Christianity is actually more culturally flexible and therefore less culturally imperialistic than Western secularism is as well. Here's what he says, his own experience. He says, you know, at the heart of Africanness, the African worldview, Sana argues, is at the heart of it is the conviction that the world is full of spirits, both good and evil. The problem then, you know, within that framework or that mindset is how can you be protected from the evil spirits? And Sana says, right, if an African person comes to a university in the West, the professors will typically tell them there are no good and evil spirits. Well, that's how you deal with the problem. There are good and evil spirits. In fact, there's not even really good and evil at all. Uh, at least not in any objective sense. All moral values should arise from within yourself, not out there in the world, but inside you should be something that you construct for yourself. Now, Dr. Sana says, ironically then, when Yale, that's where he's at, or was at, when Yale says, we welcome your culture as an African, what we really mean at Yale is we welcome your food and we welcome your dress. So leave the ideas to the side. Right? They need to go. He says the school actually works to get the Africanness out of you. Now, Christianity, Sana says, takes a very different approach. He said Christianity would speak so that the existing African framework was reconfigured without being overthrown. He says a reading of the Bible shows that it respects the African belief that there is a vast supernatural realm full of good and evil spirits. But it also tells us that there is one who, by the cross has defeated the principalities and powers because he has procured forgiveness and the favor of God, Colossians 2. And by his resurrection, he has broken the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and freed those who all their lives were held in slavery 
by their fear of death. That's Hebrews 2. And so Dr. Sana says Christianity honors the African understanding of the condition and the problem of human life, but it also offers a solution, a conquering Savior. And he goes on to conclude. He says, people sensed in their hearts that Jesus did not mock their respect for the sacred as Western secularism does or their clamor for an invincible Savior and so they beat their sacred drums for him. Christianity helped Africans to become renewed Africans, not remade Europeans. Isn't that beautiful? And that's what Paul is doing here in Acts chapter 17. As we look at this encounter that he has with the Athenians, I want to look at it in three ways. Or I just want to talk about first Paul's approach as he goes to Athens, and secondly, what does he actually say when he gets up to speak in the Areopagus. And then thirdly, we'll try to apply what Paul does there to our, so just a one sliver, one, one part of our life here in 21st century Western American culture. All right, so let's look first at Paul in Athens. Verse 16, if you have your Bibles open, of Acts chapter 17. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Now, you may know the city of Athens was hugely important in the ancient world, still very important today, but hugely important in the ancient world, the intellectual capital of the Greco-Roman world. This is the birthplace of democracy, of course, the city of Socrates, the city of Plato, many other important thinkers as well. Before the rise of the Roman Empire, it was the leading political and cultural center of the ancient world, and after it was conquered by Rome, it remained the center of learning for the whole of the empire. And so Paul is here in Athens, and Luke tells us what Paul saw, what he felt, and what he did. All right, so what, what did Paul see? Again, verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he saw that the city was full of idols. So he's waiting for his friends, and he did what you and I would do, right? Free day, new city. Well, you just go out and See the sights, right? And, and that's what Paul does. He walks around this city, the city full of architectural marvels, but he looked at it, as one scholar puts it, with spiritually sensitive eyes. If you would uh, go to the Netherlands, where I lived for a while, you would observe pretty quickly that there are more bikes than people in the Netherlands. Maybe you draw some conclusions from that. Or if you go to Seattle today, you'd see there are more dogs than children. Perhaps you would draw some conclusions from that. But one Roman satirist in the first century said that in Athens, it was easier to find a god than a man. Meaning that there are so many temples, so many statues around, so many places where idols were made and displayed that it was easier to bump into one of those than it was even to bump into another person. And so Paul may very well have been wowed by the architectural marvels of the city, but he's trying to look at this place through a biblical filter. He's trying to see Athens with God's eyes. And this, I think, is instructive for all of us. And this can be a hard thing to do, right, if you're from here, if you've lived here for quite some time, because everything seems so familiar to us. But Christians ought to be trying to think like missionaries, trying to understand what's going on in the culture around us. We should be imagining how the love of God and how the holiness of God interact with the things that exist in our city. And so we ask, what are the idols of our city? What are the things that people in Cincinnati bow down to, so to speak? 
Mark Twain once quipped that in Boston, they ask, what do you know? In New York, they ask, how much does he make? In Philadelphia, it's what family is he from? Cincinnati, maybe it's like, what high school did you go to? <laughs> Probably, right? Or, you know, Gold Star or Skyline, maybe. Those are the questions. But Twain, right, he was getting at something. He didn't talk about it in these terms. But he, he was really talking about the idols of education and wealth and family pedigree. What are the idols in our city? Is it family or is it culture? Is it wealth? Belonging, identity. Paul had spiritually sensitive eyes. Well, what did Paul feel? Verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him. And the word that's used here is the same word that's used in the Greek translation of Isaiah 65, verses 2 and 3, which describe God's reaction to idolatry in Israel. So God's reaction to idols in Israel is now Paul's reaction to idols in Athens. And the word is paroxymo. It's where we get the word paroxysm, which maybe we don't use that much, but it means an overwhelming reaction. It usually connotes kind of a, a deep mixture of both anger and sorrow. Outrage because of God's holiness, but compassion because of God's love. It's a complex feeling, right? It's not just one thing. It's not just anger or disgust. Otherwise, Paul would have been infuriated and just left them to their condemnation. He would have done what my son does sometimes when he's frustrated with us. He might kick us or throw something or whatever, and then he, if we tell him that's not the right thing to do, he'd say, that's what you get. <laughs> uh, that's what you get. Well, all right, that's not Paul here, though. He could have done that if it was only one-sided, right? It was just only had a notion of the holiness of God. He might say, that's what you get. But on the flip side, it's not just compassion and mercy either. He's not just cheering them on. He's not just affirming everything. No, in fact, we see as we go on in this passage, Paul challenges them. At one point, he tells these folks at the intellectual center of the world that they have ignorance when it comes to the true nature of God. And so what we see with Paul is a mixture of anger and compassion, which leads us to the next point. What did Paul do? Well, let's pick up in verse 17. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. So Paul's response to this idolatry was not to ignore it, nor was it to run for the hills, but his response was to engage. And John Stott in his commentary on Acts sums it up this way. He says, we do not speak like Paul because we do not feel like Paul because we do not see like Paul. That was the order. He saw, he felt, he spoke. It all began with his eyes. When Paul walked around Athens, he did not just notice the idols. The Greek verb used three times is either uh, theoreo or anatheoreo, which means to consider. So he looked and looked and thought and thought until the fires were kindled within. And this is part of what we should be doing together. We look at our cities. We look at our culture. We should be studying. We should be comparing notes. We should be looking for the ways that the gospel intersects with the prevailing attitudes and beliefs of our city. And this doesn't have to be an academic exercise, although there's a place for that too. But some of it is just learning to ask good questions, to make observations, to listen to the people around us. What do people care about? What makes life meaningful? Where am I looking for hope? What do people say they need in order to be happy? The kind of missiology right, that Paul is doing here in Athens. 
Luke describes what he saw, what he felt, what he spoke, or what he did, which was speak. And so now let's, let's, let's actually talk about what he said, right? When he does have the opportunity to present the gospel to the Athenians, what does Paul say? Well, in verse 18, it says that Paul encountered two schools of thought, two philosophies in Athens. Uh, verse 18 says, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers conversed with him. And they, who are these Epicureans? Who are the Stoics? Well, the Epicureans, I'm, I'm, I'm going very quickly here, but the Epicureans, uh, they didn't deny the existence of gods, but they considered uh, the divine relatively remote from this world and from life. And therefore, they saw history as being random and life as being without any kind of ultimate mean. After death, there was nothing. And so as a result, this philosophy, the Epicureans counseled that people should pursue whatever brought them pleasure or fulfillment in this life. So you should pursue what brings you the most joy right now. And they certainly saw no need to do anything that entailed discomfort or pain or self-denial. Now, the Stoics, on the other hand, they believed in God, or at least they believed in some sort of dynamic world spirit, which fixed the fate of everyone and everything. And so morality then consisted in working with the grain of the universe or working with the grain of this overarching morality or working with the grain uh, or the designs of the deity. And so the goal for Stoics was not pleasure, but duty. And so Paul is interacting with them, as well as sort of the just pop culture religion of the general populace who are paying homage to their gods. And they take him, verse 19, to the Areopagus, the hill of Ares or Mars Hills, it's sometimes translated, which was the council of the teachers and the philosophers. What does he say when he gets there? Well, Paul begins first, verse 22, with a point of connection. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. He gives them a compliment, right? He, uh, uh, he affirms something. And then in verse 28, he approvingly quotes from several of the Greek poets, from uh, Epimenides, who he also quotes later in his letter to Titus, and then uh, to, uh, from Erastus. And so Paul here, he's, he begins with an affirmation. He, he works for common ground, starts with a compliment. He moves from the familiar to the unfamiliar. But then secondly, he highlights a problem. Verse 23. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. Now we have to remember here that Luke is just really giving us a summary of Paul's whole preaching here. So this is an outline. This is not the whole thing. This is not everything that he said. But what the commentators all say is happening here, as Luke summarizes it, is that Paul is honing in on an acknowledgement of a limitation within this system, within the Athenian worldview. Because after all, why would you make an altar to an unknown God if you didn't have a deep sense somewhere that there's something missing in our perception of reality, that there's something about God, something about the world, something about the nature of reality that we haven't quite grasped yet. See, Paul sees this tomb, or not tomb, this uh, 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 idol, uh, this temple to the unknown God as an indicator, a recognition that, that we don't have it all figured out yet, that there's something we can't quite grasp. And it's into this moment now, Paul steps and says, that God that you know you've missed, 
That God that you have not been able yet to discover, he's the one I reveal to you today. Let me tell you about Jesus. Paul's saying, I want to affirm something, but I know that you're missing something, and so let me tell you about Jesus. That's his approach. When Tim Keller, his pastor in New York City, uh, when he trains people in making the case for Christianity, sort of publicly speaking about their faith, he says, you know, we ought to think about Christianity as like a suit of clothes um, that's too big for us. Christianity is a suit of clothes that's too big for us. So when you become a Christian, you get this suit of clothes, you get this um, set of beliefs that you're only sort of growing into over time. And even if you're at it for a long time as a Christian, you never quite embody it fully. You never quite really grow into it. It's a suit of clothes that's too big to us, too big for us. But then he says, really all non-Christian beliefs are like a suit of clothes that's too small for us. It pinches all the time. That is, it doesn't quite fit our nature. It doesn't quite fit how we've been made. It pinches all the time, and sometimes, if you move suddenly, it rips, right? It's a suit of clothes that doesn't quite fit right. We've all adopted beliefs that don't fit with re- the reality of who we are and who we're made to be. And so if we're made, for example, to know and to love God, if we worship anything else, we have idols, it's going to pinch, in a bad way, and sometimes it's going to rip. And it's into those spaces that we have the opportunity to speak. Paul is affirming things in Athens, and then he goes to a place that's pinching, maybe even ripping. And what does he do? Well, he proclaims the living and true God, and here he does it in five ways, or at least Luke gives us a summary of five points that Paul makes. He first proclaims God as the creator Verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, he does not live in temples made by man. He's saying, Paul's saying, Athenians, you worship, you're you're religious, and that is a great thing. But don't you also have the sense that these gods, many of whom in your stories were born or created themselves, Don't you get the sense that these are not worthy of giving your life to, and they're not really worth all of your devotion? But let me tell you, there is a God who made the world and everything in it, and he is worthy of your worship. And verse 29, since he's the creator of everything, he cannot be contained in an image of gold or silver or anything formed by the art and the imagination of man. The creator made us, so we can't make him out of gold or silver or stone. He proclaims God as creator. Secondly, he proclaims God as sustainer. Verse 25, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So contrast then the the Greek idols who do need our worship. And Paul says the God I proclaim doesn't need anything from us. He acts consistently because he acts according to his very nature. So he's not capricious. He's not unpredictable. He can't be manipulated. He doesn't need our worship, but he deserves it. Thirdly, he's the ruler of all. Verse 26, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. He's a God, not just of a given nation, but all nations. 
not just of one people, but all peoples. In fact, they've all been made in his image and placed in the various places he's put them. He's the Lord of all. But then fourthly, and this is the good news, he's relational. Verse 27, they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. And even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. God is transcendent, Paul says, but he's not remote. He desires for us to seek him. Indeed, we're made to find him. We're made in his image. We're made for relationship with him. And then finally, like all good preachers, Paul gives a call to respond. Verse 30, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. He's saying, this is the God you've been looking for. He's going to judge all the earth, so repent and believe in him. Where is this suit of beliefs pinching you? You have all these idols, but you know that none of them are worthy, ultimately worthy of your respect, of your devotion, of giving your whole life to. Let me tell you about the creator of heaven and earth and how he's come to us. But he's not just talking to the general populace and and their devotion to idols. He's also talking to these philosophies that we spoke about earlier. The Epicureans saw the gods as personal but remote and uninvolved in human affairs. They were happy hedonists, the Epicureans were, teaching that life consisted of following your desires. The Stoics, on the other hand, saw God as a kind of life force, controlling everything, but not a personal being you could relate to and know and obey. They were pessimists, teaching that life consisted of just following duty. To the Epicureans, Paul says, God is near, and he's a judge, and so therefore you cannot just do anything you want. To the Stoics, Paul says, God is personal and a savior, You can know hope and freedom. He's telling the Epicureans not to make an idol of pleasure, and he's telling the Stoics not to make an idol of duty. See what he's doing? Paul is looking for those places where their beliefs were pinching, perhaps even ripping, and into those places beginning to speak about the living and true God and how he's disclosed himself to us in Jesus Christ and his person and his work. But what does that mean then for us? Talk about the gospel to the Athenians, but what would Paul say to Cincinnatians or to Norwegians, Nor- Norwoodians? Yeah, whatever. Yeah, I like Norwegian. Sounds a little, I don't know, uh, classier, I guess. I don't know. But uh, what would he say to us? What would he say to our neighborhood? What would he say to Cincinnati? What would he say, not just, you know, look, there are places in our culture, in our culture's beliefs, and not just Cincinnati, but, but Western culture in general, there are places where our beliefs are pinching and even ripping. And we could talk about that in a lot of different ways. We could talk about it in relationship to justice. We could talk about it in relationship to suffering. We could talk about how our beliefs about truth are pinching us and ripping. But just for a couple of minutes here at the end, and we're going to have to do this quickly, but let's talk about identity for a moment. And by identity, I mean, how is it that we get a sense of who we are and ultimately what makes us valuable? 
What makes life significant? Now, what would Paul say to Western American culture with regard to that? Well, first, I think he would say this is good, this search for identity, for meaning, for significance. In some ways, isn't that a search for salvation? Isn't that search for meaning and significance, a search for righteousness, even if we don't use that term, a search for cleansing, a search for value and and esteem and worth? And Paul might say to us, I perceive that in every way you are very religious in your pursuit of these things, even if you don't call it religion. But then he, I think, would say there's a problem. This pursuit is not going well. Charles Taylor uh, wrote a book, Canadian philosopher. He wrote a book called The Sources of the Self, and the subtitle of which is uh, The Making of Modern Identity. And in this book, uh, Charles Taylor says that uh, traditional cultures or ancient cultures, not just ancient in terms of time, but traditional cultures even around the world still, and modern cultures, on the other hand, especially in secular societies, pursue this concept of identity in very, very different ways. Traditional identities, he says, are porous. That means they are, um, porous just means that there's, there's transaction going back and forth, right? There's holes in it. So our concept of identity in, in traditional societies, traditional cultures, there were pulls on your life uh, from the outside. And, and those uh, things from the outside actually helped to determine who you wanted to be, what you would strive to be, what you thought the good life was, what would make your life meaningful and significant. And so for those people in traditional identities who uh, believed in God, you would feel the pull of God on your life. And uh, even apart from that, you would feel the pull of family on your life and the demands of country and society at large. And these forces were important enough in traditional identities that you would begin to rearrange what you might feel on the inside in order to adapt to what you thought was true on the outside. That's how traditional identities are formed. But Taylor says this is no longer the norm in Western culture, especially in North America, but in Europe as well. He says the modern self is not porous anymore. It's what he calls a buffered self. It's a hard-coded self. In other words, we don't feel the pull in the same way from anything outside of us. Instead, my feelings are more real than anything that exists outside of me, which means then I validate myself ultimately. I decide what is right or wrong for me. Nobody can assign value or worth to me. I form my identity by bestowing dignity upon myself. And if you notice, this is actually not too difficult to observe in the shift in at least broad American culture from traditional identity to modern identity by just tracing the way hero stories are told. Hero stories used to be about mainly, and even 30, 40 years ago, you can look at this, usually a hero story had the storyline, the dominant sort of arc of the story was somebody um, having to sacrifice personal ambitions in order to pursue some greater good, right? There's stories like that all over the place. Sacrificing a personal ambition in order to pursue some greater good. But now, almost exclusively actually, our hero stories, pervaded by Disney and other places, usually involve breaking free from some outer pull on your life in order to pursue what's really true, the pursuit of your inner happiness, the realization of your own internal identity, maybe best represented by Elsa's, you know, let it go song, right? But here's the problem, right? There's a pinch, there's often a rip 
in this modern approach to identity. And first of all, we're beginning to realize this as anxiety levels go through the roof, as mental health issues become uh, massive, right? This is a lot of pressure to deal with this. If you have to go inside and figure everything out, right, and figure out your meaning and your worth, this is a ton of pressure because it's confusing, first of all, because we often have competing desires. It's difficult to sort out which of those desires because our, our desires often compete with each other, and we also know our desires change and evolve over Time. So the question there always is, which me is the real me? It's disorienting to try to figure that out. But secondly, it's also crushing. In the modern self, we don't just have to fulfill a role in family or society. We actually have to be beautiful and powerful and brilliant. We have to chase our dreams. We have to have it all. We have to change the world. We have to make money. We have to be successful. Talk about pressure that we're putting on ourselves. And, Charles Taylor says, because we are irreducibly relational beings, even if we do throw off the expectations of family and society, we still end up pursuing validation from others. We just change the subset of who those others are. We look for validation from a social group or uh, some aesthetic group or a professional society. We go inside to look for who we are, but immediately almost we come outside to demand validation. And for those who don't validate it, it's not just a disagreement, it's an attack. And they become an enemy. And so what would Paul say to our present moment, right? Where there's some pinching that I think folks are starting to realize, maybe even some ripping what would Paul say? Well, I think he would say this sense, this pursuit of identity that you seek is good. But he would say you don't look for it outwardly, as in a traditional sense of identity might be, because that can be stifling as well. But you also don't go inward, as in the modern sense of identity. But Paul would say we need to look upward. He would say there is a God who made the world he made everything in it, including you. He's holy, and he's beautiful, and he's wise, and he's just, and he made you in his image. And though he's transcendent, he is not remote. He's not far off. You should seek him. In fact, he's inviting you to do so. And you will only really find yourself in relation to your maker, because in him we live and move and have our being, for we are indeed his offspring. You know, Paul said in Athens, what you worship as unknown, I now proclaim to you. Dr. Sana in Africa would say, this invincible Savior you've been seeking, I now proclaim to you in Jesus Christ. To our culture, the gospel says, Paul would say, there is an identity which is received and not achieved. That is, it doesn't go up and down based on how you're doing or even your own self-realization or self-actualization. It's not gonna go up and down and how you're doing this week, this month, this year. It's given from above, not discovered from within, so it's consistent and durable. It can survive our own changing feelings and desires, and it comes to us from the work of Jesus Christ, who is the same yesterday and today and forever. He is not fickle in his disposition to you, and thus this identity is durable and not fragile. The gospel tells us that in Jesus, we have the righteousness of his work placed upon us, his person placed upon us, and then God names us. Isn't that what a name is, is an identity? He gives us a name. He calls us beloved. He calls us forgiven. 
He calls us clean. He calls us child of the living God. He calls us citizen of the kingdom of heaven. This is an identity, the sense of meaning and worth that's durable, not fragile, from above, not discovered within, received, not achieved. And it can be found in Jesus Christ, who was raised from the dead. Let's pray together this morning, and we're going to come to the Lord's table and help perhaps reinforce these things as we're fed by Christ's work for us. As we take the bread and the wine, we remember his work for us on the cross. But let's pray together, recognizing uh, that Paul is calling us from Acts 17 to do this same kind of work with our friends, with our neighbors as well. So let's pray and let's ask for God's help. Father, as we continue to process these things and the complexity of this issue and in, in this text that we're just scratching the surface of this morning, would you help us indeed to, to do what Paul did, to, to have eyes to see, um, that we might feel um, what you feel, that we have spiritually a sensitive uh, sight as we look at um, the culture in which we live. And then would you help us uh, to bring to bear the gospel uh, on our own life, but in the lives of, of those around us? Would you teach us uh, how beautiful it is that, that Christianity uh, transcends any one cultural moment, but has something to say uh, to every people in every place, and indeed calls us all to come and to, to, to worship the living and true God who's been made known to us in Jesus Christ. Would you help us even as we worship this morning to move closer to that? In his name we pray, amen. You've been listening to a sermon from New City, a church in Cincinnati, Ohio. Visit our website at newcitycincy.org for more sermons and resources. That's newcitycincy.org. Thanks for joining us today, and God bless you.